As we've been taking a little bit of time every night to become reacquainted with this wonderful book, um, rereading it. As I said the very first night, it's important that we become rereaders of Revelation. We've been looking at the past couple of evenings at Revelation chapters 4 and 5. So I invite you to turn there with me. It's going to touch on chapter 4 briefly, and then we're going to look in more detail in chapter 5. And last night, I, I made a statement that it's quite okay for people to disagree with. Um, I made a statement that, to me, when we look at Revelation 4 and 5, I see the entire sanctuary to view. It's as if John is looking through the holy place, seven, past the seven branch candlestick or lampstand, and then into the most holy place where he sees the throne of God surrounded by that emerald rainbow. And again, as we read yesterday, that that rainbow encircles the throne, and beneath that rainbow is the mercy seat. Now, the timing of these two chapters, different individuals, um, different Bible students come to different conclusions. Within Seventh-day Adventism, the two main conclusions are that either this, well, there would be three. One conclusion would be that this is just a timeless scene without any historical grounding. Another would be that this is the ascension of Christ. And a third view would actually be that this is the beginning of the judgment in 1844. I'm going to leave aside the question of what time this is. But I'd like to share a quotation with you. Someone asked a question yesterday that if this was the ascension, how could Jesus, how could it be the entire sanctuary? Didn't Jesus begin his ministry in the holy place? Well, yes and no. Certainly upon his uh, beginning of his ministry, Jesus focused his ministry, began his ministry in the holy place. But that's not where he went first. Just as when Moses inaugurated the earthly sanctuary, he went into the entire sanctuary and then came out and the priests began their function in the first department. In the same way, that's what Christ did upon his ascension. Notice this quotation, Signs of the Times, April 19, 1905. Signs of the Times, April 19, 1905. Still bearing humanity, he, Christ, ascended to heaven triumphant and victorious. He has taken the blood of the atonement into the holiest of all, sprinkled it upon the mercy seat and his own garments, and blessed the people. Notice the setting. Upon his ascension, he first went into the most holy place to inaugurate the sanctuary, and then he began his ministry in what we often call the first apartment. So whether this is ascension imagery or whether it's day of atonement imagery, we could still see it as the entire sanctuary brought to view. Incidentally, I do have an opinion on what that time is, but we're going to lay the question aside for tonight at least. Chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. I brought out the other evening that I believe that when we reread Revelation carefully, we find out that the focus of the book of Revelation is the great controversy. And again, the controversy rages not only outside with political, religious, historical entities, but it also rages inside my heart. The Book of Education, page 190, we should see that in every act of life, 
every act of life, we are showing what side of the great controversy we are on. So how I respond to a friend, to a spouse, to someone that cuts me off, whatever the circumstance is, I am showing what side of the great controversy I'm on. And there's a controversy raging in heaven. We know that that controversy began in the heavenly council. And as we looked yesterday evening as well, we saw that the four beings, four living creatures, as the New American Standard calls them, were part of this divine council, the 24 elders, also part of this group of people. Chapter 5 tells us or focuses our attention more on the crisis that is in heaven. We know, Revelation 12, that the war began in heaven. Revelation 5 pictures a crisis in heaven. Superficial readers of the book of Revelation enter into chapter 4 and think this shows the peace of heaven as opposed to the conflict on earth. I don't think that's the case. Chapter 4 and 5 together reveal to us that the, the wars and the turmoils on earth are really a reflection of the war and conflict that began in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Notice the expression, him who sat on the throne. A book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. So instantly, John's vision narrows in a little bit. He's heard this song, and now he sees the one sitting on the throne, God on the throne. And in his right hand is this book sealed up with seven seals. And as we look in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, it becomes clear that there are several places that John draws his imagery from. One very important place is the book of Ezekiel. The book that John sees sealed up is written inside and on the back. In Ezekiel chapter 2, let's turn there. Keep your finger or put a marker in, Ezekiel, in Revelation. Let's just turn back to Ezekiel, the second chapter. Ezekiel 2, in verses 9 and 10. Ezekiel 2, verse 9, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written, where? Front and back, inside and out. And written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. So, again, the book of Revelation, I turn back to Revelation 5. John never quotes the Old Testament, but he uses many, many allusions to it. So here he's drawing our attention to this scroll written inside and out, and it contains lamentations, woe, disasters. <laughs> Hi, Elaine. This little book is obviously of great importance. And as we read through the passage, we'll find out that the passage itself points out great importance. Let's continue reading. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 5. 
It's sealed up inside and out. It's a book of lamentations, disasters, and woe. But it's sealed. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, a herald, if you will, for the divine council, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Who is going to undo the lamentations, the woe, the sorrows that are coming upon humanity? Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. Verse 4, then I began to weep greatly. Weep greatly. Interesting expression used to describe Peter's weeping as well. Intense sorrow. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Brothers and sisters, there is a crisis in heaven. The angelic host, the divine councils there, the angelic beings are there, the four living creatures. They have eyes inside and outside. They're watching what's taking place. Things are open. You know, heaven is open. There's a, the door open in heaven. God's trying to be open. But here's this book, this scroll that is sealed. And who is worthy to open it? Who is worthy to undo the sorrows and the anguish that are written in that book? The answer? Nobody. And when John hears that, he begins to weep. And not just a gentle tear falling here or there. He begins to weep greatly. John is painting for us the intensity of this crisis in heaven. And as we read carefully in the book of Revelation, it's not simply a crisis about all the trials and troubles that are here on earth. It's partially that. But it's also a question. It's also a crisis over why doesn't God do something? How come God is not acting? One of the fundamental issues in the great country, great controversy, And one of the fundamental issues that's brought out in the book of Revelation is that God gives his creatures way too much freedom. God gives his creatures way too much freedom. Doesn't he? Doesn't he give us the freedom of choice? To say, sorry, God, you know, I'm not going to follow you. Doesn't he give us the freedom of choice? to persecute, to rebel, to do whatever you want. God gives his creatures an abundance of freedom, and that causes a problem in the council in heaven. God, when are you going to do things? Revelation chapter 6, the imagery of the souls that have been martyred, the individuals who have been put to death because of their testimony, they cry out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, do you refrain from judging and avenging our blood upon those who dwell on the earth. It's not simply a question of, well, Lord, how long until you do something? It's, Lord, why aren't you doing something? How long are you refraining? How long are you holding back? So here's this question. Who's going to put God's character right? Who is really worthy, able to open the book? Who's able to make things right in the universe? And the first answer is no one. 
and John begins to weep. Um, in the book Christ Object Lessons, page 294, Ellen White makes this comment. She says, thus the Jewish leaders made their choice, their decision to reject Christ. And then she goes on to say, their decision to crucify Christ was registered in the book which John saw in the hand of him that sat upon the throne. The book which no man can open. In all its vindictiveness, this decision will appear before them in the day when this book is unsealed by the lion of the tribe of Judah. So what was written in there? At least one thing. The decision of the Jewish leaders to reject Christ. But don't think we get off so easily. Um, 20 manuscript releases, page 194. She describes this book, and she says, in this book is the role of the history of God's providences, the prophetic history of nations and the church. Herein is contained divine utterances, his authority, his laws, the symbolic counsel of the eternal. In symbolic language was contained in the role, the influence of every nation, tongue, and people from the beginning of Earth's history to its close. Your place and mine is written in this book. And it's a book of lamentations, sorrows, and woes. And it's sealed. And your destiny and my destiny hinges on somebody being able to rewrite our history. Somebody being able to open that book and could we say change the entries? Or at least blot out some of the entries? And there's a crisis in heaven. What's God going to do? Well, probably all very familiar with what happens next, but the import of what happens next is so important for us to understand in reading Revelation. Why? Because the question in Revelation, as I brought out the other evening, is, is God fit to rule? Is he fit to rule in my life? Is he fit to rule in the universe? Is he fit to rule in the church? The throne is the central image. Who should sit on the throne? Who is worthy to open the book? Revelation chapter 5 in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, and I'm sure some of you are asking, well, who are these elders? I have an opinion on that too. Revelation 5 in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome, has prevailed, has been victorious so as to open the book and break its seal. Note the imagery that the elder uses to describe the victor. What are those expressions? The lion from the tribe of Judah. Where does that image come from? Well, it comes from the Old Testament. That's a hint. It comes from Genesis. Okay. Genesis. Okay, when Jacob's describing the 12 tribes and he describes Judah under the imagery of a lion, lion's whelp, and the chapter? 49. Very good. Verse what? He's checking. But he's got the chapter right. But the lion from the tribe of Judah is an image of what kind of authority? It's a kingly authority. Here's the king. And then the second image as well from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. The root of David. Another kingly image, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the king, the messianic ruler, he's coming. He's going to set everything right. 
he's going to set right the question on whether God should really rule. He's going to demonstrate that God's rule is really valuable, that God's rule is the one that should be over the universe, that God's sovereignty should be upheld. But when we look at that in verse 6, and I saw between the throne, where did we see this? What does it say? King James probably in the midst of the throne, right? In the midst of the throne, the Greek expression, the Greek expression, professor, very confusing again, you know, um, right in the midst, and meso, right in the center of the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. Where is he standing? Don't miss it. Where is he standing? In the midst of the throne. How does God rule? God rules through the sacrifice of himself. God rules through self-denial and sacrifice. And the questions that the heavenly council are wrestling about, well, you know, God, how come you don't do something? God, why do you let evil run in this world? God, how come you haven't started? Stop Satan. Satan continues to throw his accusations. What's God's answer? The crucified Christ is God's answer. We have questions about why things happen in this world. Why does God allow this? Why does God allow that? Why hasn't the second coming happened already? What is going on? Where should we look? To the crucified Christ. Because that demonstrates how God rules. You know, we look back through the Hebrew scriptures, and there's lots of questions. We could say, well, God, how come you did it this way there? I mean, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood and all these different things. The clearest revelation of God is at the cross. That's where all the mysteries about what God is like disappear. And that's what Revelation is trying to tell us. Yes, there's questions in the heavenly council. You know, yes, even the angelic beings wrestle with, you know, Satan's accusations on some level. But God's answer? To give himself in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Revelation's story is this unfolding that, yes, God should rule the universe. And how do I know? Because I can see how God rules. And he rules through self-denial and self-sacrifice. Of course, as we continue here in Revelation um, chapter 5, we see this great song where when the angelic beings, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, when they realize, when they see, wow, this is God's character clearly made, they burst out in song, and that song starts uh, in verse 9, as the angels worship. But I want to read something to you, a couple of quotations to you from Review and Herald. First one, Review, Review and Herald, July 17, 1990. She describes the fall, and she says that a crisis had arrived in the government of God. A what had arrived? A crisis had arrived in the government of God. All heaven was prepared to act. Did you catch that? Crisis came, Adam and Eve fell, Satan's rebellion. There's a crisis in heaven, and all heaven is prepared to act. Every move, that's every move of God, was watched with intense anxiety. Exercise of justice was expected. Did you catch it? 
There's a crisis in heaven. And the heavenly universe is like, okay, God, do something. The exercise of justice was expected. Signs of the Times, August 27, 1902. Ken describing uh, acts of rebellion throughout the history of this world. It says that the angelic beings thought, that was a paraphrase, now here's the quote, that he would come forth from his place to punish. The quotation goes on to say, let me read it. Um, All heaven waited the bidding of their commander to pour out the vials of wrath on a rebellious world. One word from him, one sign, and the world would have been destroyed. The unfallen worlds would have said, Amen. You are righteous, O God, because you have exterminated rebellion. Now, I'm talking about holy angels, angelic beings, who are far more compassionate than you or I are. And and yet, if God had risen from his place and done what they expected, they would have said, amen. That's the right thing. But God didn't. Created a crisis in heaven. God, when are you going to do something? Well, he did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that act amazed the heavenly council, and it should amaze us as well. Because we would have been those that are destroyed. And yet God, in his great mercy, and his long-suffering, and his patience with us, and his kindness toward us, says, no, I'm not going to destroy them, at least not at this point in Earth's history. I'm going to do everything I can to save them. And as it says by the writer John, he says, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And that he sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the substitute atonement, the way out for us. Same quotation continues on. The severity of the conflict through which Christ passed was proportionate to the vastness of the interest involved in his success or failure. I don't know if you caught that. The severity of the conflict through which Jesus endured was proportionate, in proportion, to the issues at stake. And we know that all heaven was at risk. What did our Savior endure to show us what God is like? To make a way for us to be redeemed. It was not merely the interests of the one world that were at stake. This earth was the battlefield, that's true. But all the worlds that God has created would be affected by the results of the conflict. And that's what Revelation is trying to tell us, that the conflict we're in is a cosmic conflict, and that the angelic beings, they want to see it revolved. They have seen it resolved already, praise God, their view of the cross. But God's still waiting for us to catch that same view of the cross. But it's going to happen. 
the song continues, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So you see this widening circle. In the center, there's the, the one sitting on the throne and next to him is the lamb. And then you have the four living creatures. And then you have the 24 elders. And then you have this wider circle of angelic beings around the throne. Everything radiates, radiates out from the center of that throne of love with the rainbow encircling it. And it goes on to say, the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, a sevenfold acclamation of praise to the lamb. But it doesn't stop there. And every created thing, verse 13, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, 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 Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. More important than having every prophetic symbol in the book of Revelation identified is having the experience that the elders and the four living beings do. Where we realize that as we read through this book, as we experience God, as we understand more of our lo- his love, our hearts should be saying, Amen. And we should get off our thrones of self-righteousness and bow down before him and worship. And as John writes this vision, I mean, he starts in a historical context, but he goes all the way through the end of time because at this point, at the end of the chapter, every created thing in the universe is joining in with that song. Do you want to join in? We begin right now by putting Christ on the throne and taking his part in the great controversy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the Sabbath. Thank you for your rich love toward us. Thank you for your patience, your long-suffering, your mercy, your condescension. Thank you for giving yourself in Jesus Christ for us. Lord, take our hearts. We can't give them. They're your property. We can't change them. We can't keep them. But you can raise our hearts into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through our souls. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.